0: I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at CSIS. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing the recent announcement of U.S. export regulations on semiconductors and its impact on U.S.-China relations. How do these new U.S. rules impact China's technology development? What does this mean for the U.S.-China economic relationship? Are we entering a new phase of U.S.-China technological competition? Here to discuss these questions are my colleagues at CSIS, Emily Benson and Gerard DiPippo. Ms. Benson is a senior fellow with the Shoal Chair in International Business. She joined CSIS after working in Transatlantic Affairs at the Brunson Foundation. Ms. Benson has several years of experience working in international law, focusing on expert controls and sanctions. Mr. DiPippo is a senior fellow in economics program at CSIS, joining after 11 years in the U.S. intelligence community. From 2018 to 2021, Mr. DiPippo was a deputy national intelligence officer for economic issues at the National Intelligence Council, where he led the IC's economic analysis of East Asia. So, Emily and Gerard, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having us, Bonnie. Pleasure to be here.
1: Hello. I'm glad to be here.
0: Great. Thank you. So I want to start off with a little bit of background. Could one of you explain what was contained in the Biden administration's recent export restrictions on chips to China? Why is this such a big deal?
2: Uh, I'm happy to kick that one off, Bonnie. On October 7th, the Commerce Department's Bureau of Industry and Security, BIS, announced two new rules that target China's advanced semiconductor industry. Uh, I'll just highlight a couple of the main parts of the new uh, restrictions. And basically what they do is add certain items to the commerce control list, the CCL of the Export Administration Regulations, the EAR. Uh, this includes certain advanced chips, items containing the Chips and also semiconductor manufacturing equipment. The two new rules also contain new foreign direct product rules. These clarify the extraterritorial application of controls. So this means essentially that anything made with US inputs, including software and design, can be controlled even if it's produced abroad. The new rules also contain a requirement that US companies and their individuals, if they're providing support for the fabrication of advanced nodes chips, that they seek a license to be able to undertake that work. So essentially providing support for high-grade chip manufacturing in China is now deemed a controlled event. Another major change is that BIS has updated the management of the unverified list. So this is not the entities list, but it's a list where the U.S. government cannot verify the reliability of an end user, meaning it may or may not have ties to the Chinese military. So what this does is kind of speed up the process, gives BIS more agility to be able to combat this problem of shell companies where a Chinese entity will, for example, be put on the entity list pretty soon they're able to turn around and set up a shell company uh, in order to evade the regulations. So the updates to the unverified list are more expansive and also allow for a quicker turnaround time. I think what's interesting is that BIS went forward without notice and comment. And this reflects a fear that the Chinese would start stockpiling um, either high-grade chips or machine tools for fabrication of the chips. But I think another major takeaway is that the new rules are not intended to decouple global supply chains and mature semiconductor nodes, this is really aimed at the advanced chips with supercomputing capabilities. So I think if we look at some of the broad strokes, what does it mean in the grand scheme of things? These are aimed at targeting Chinese supercomputing and AI capabilities that could have applications in advanced weapon systems like hypersonic missiles or WMDs. And the Biden administration is really trying to create a choke point, as Jake Sullivan called it, to stymie the Chinese acquisition of these advanced technologies. So if we think about the three main strokes, as I understand them about these rules, I think uh, three words stand out to me. They're novel and that they're geographic in nature, they're all unilateral because the administration did not uh, achieve buy-in from close allies. And they're also extraterritorial. So like I was saying earlier, they apply uh, to goods that were made abroad with US inputs. So what this means is that we're probably moving away from an end-user-based system to something a little bit broader that looks more like a Cold War approach to export controls.
0: So let me leave it there for now. Great, thank you. And can I also ask um you mentioned that these would forward without notice and comment, and you mentioned that because of fears of potential PRC reaction. Is it becoming more common broadly when the Biden administration thinks about expert controls to move forward with these notices without comment? I'm not sure. Um, I think this
2: is a new approach, certainly. I don't know if it will be the same in other areas with future controls. It really depends on what the administration thinks the Chinese would be interested in stockpiling. So I think this is a concern that we saw early on with Russia, this fear that Putin would kind of hoard all of these inputs, knowing that they would ultimately be controlled. Uh, To the degree that that becomes a more formalized or typical policy, I think remains to be seen.
0: Thank you, Emily. I wanted to follow up with a question on what exactly is the Biden administration trying to target in terms of China, and how effective could these rules be in terms of implementation? We've seen that one of the characteristics that you mentioned of the rules is that they were relatively unilateral and with no significant buy-in from our allies and partners. How do you see implementation moving forward on this?
2: Yeah, I think the question of Allied buy-in is a very interesting one. There have been some reports that the administration engaged in significant diplomatic back-channeling throughout the spring in attempts to get the European Union, particularly the Dutch on board, the Japanese and the Koreans. Uh, As I understand it, all ultimately declined. Uh, We also saw this with the Biden administration's attempt to convince ASML, the Dutch manufactured to stop selling DUV, which is previous generation technology, to China, they also declined. Uh, I think this represents a problem at the very heart of export controls, which is that China is a very large customer for these companies. And so there will be significant trade-offs as more controls are levied. Uh, China is a significant export market for these companies. 33% of sales at applied materials, for example, uh, go to China. That number is 27% for Intel. Um, Lam recently announced that they are looking at a contraction of $2.5 billion in 2023. So I think already we can see that this is having a ripple effect. Um, In the days that followed, kind of in the five-day period after the application. the the announcement of the new rules, Chinese chip stocks lost $8.6 billion. Uh, And so what this signals is that with the stroke of a pen, if you will, the United States is able to really shift marketplaces and encourage a longer term thinking um, to encourage companies to accelerate their moves outside of China. That being said... No export controls are 100% bulletproof. DIS has a very small, but in my opinion, very agile and to date um, successful capabilities on, on what is otherwise a small staff. But that means that things will fall through the cracks. And if a company or government has a strong interest in obtaining technology, there will still be ways to get it, but it will be much more difficult.
0: Thank you, Emily. Gerard, let me turn it over to you. As you look at these rules and how it has been implemented, have you seen any Chinese public or private responses to these recent measures?
1: So the, the rules were announced going into the 20th Party Congress. So that I don't think that was intentional. I don't know. But irrespective of intent, it certainly hit the Chinese bureaucracy flat-footed because they were obviously busy during their political cycle. So, the response has been muted. There was a foreign ministry statement, I guess, on the 8th of October, uh, decrying the use of technological hegemony, sort of the standard line that the U.S. is using its technology as a weapon to stunt China's rise. Uh, They said this with various other actions the U.S. has taken. Uh, China has not done anything else, as far as I can tell. They have not um, retaliated, or we can debate whether they will. Uh, But so far, it's quiet. But now that, you know, as of... 23, uh, I guess the 23rd of of October, the party Congress and the first plenum that were through that. And so now we might be able to see what the response might be. I suspect that this is something that will be pretty high on the uh, new Politburo's docket. Um, Also, getting back to your earlier question of, because you asked two questions. One was, what is the intent of the U.S. actions? And the second was on the effectiveness. On effectiveness, I mean, I agree with Emily's points. In terms of early indicators, the market responses are pretty, pretty important, and she covered that. Um, but in terms of intent, I think at a high level, it's, it's worth going back to what Jake Sullivan was saying on the 16th of September. Uh, he gave a speech which covered many issues, but, but part of it was talking about a new approach to export controls. I'm just going to quote what he said. It's not that long, but he said, quote, On export controls, we have to revisit the longstanding premise of maintaining relative advantages over competitors in certain key technologies. We previously maintained a sliding scale approach that said we need to stay at only a couple of generations ahead that is not the strategic environment we are in today. Given the foundational nature of certain technologies, such as advanced logic and memory chips, we must maintain as large of a lead as possible. So th- that foreshadowed what was coming. So th- the idea is it's not just leading edge. We're trying to say that we don't want China to catch up or really get, you know, more than, say, two generations within whatever technology we're talking about. The justification for all this, by the way, is China's civil mill fusion efforts which you probably covered on this podcast before. The bottom line there is that it's essentially Chinese official policy that whatever civilian sector technologies are dealing with, they have to be able to be repurposed upon demand uh, for military applications or for for government use, China is trying to in some ways duplicate what how they think our defense procurement system works. That's a whole other discussion. But the problem with it is that uh, civil fusion could could be used to apply to anything. So if you are a multinational company and you're saying, well, okay, what other technologies might be vulnerable to this type of justification? It's pretty much anything that's advanced, right? And that's the, it's rather elastic. And in a sense, it's China's fault because they broadcast this as actually a pretty major theme in the fourteen five year plan. But nonetheless, I think it, that's really adding to a lot of the uncertainty that, that multinational firms are facing now.
2: If I could just add to what Gerard was saying about a long-term shift in U.S. thinking on export controls, this really is profound. In the Cold War, we made assumptions that anything going to the Soviet Union would necessarily end up in military use. And so we had to decide whether or not to allow it to leave U.S. soil, if you will. Um, After the Cold War, we've engaged an end user-based policy that allows for a greater number of exports. So we say, if if we can determine that you will not use this technology in a military setting, then we will permit this export, uh, which we do via a licensing process. Like Gerard was saying, China's civil military fusion has really changed our calculations of what we're willing to let be exported from the United States. Uh, I think also to to quote Anthony Blinken from I believe a speech in May or June, this highlights the administration's push to invest a line and compete. And so what we're really seeing is an industrial policy here in the United States that is coupled with enhanced restrictions. So this really is building a taller fence around a small number of goods.
0: So we mentioned the Cold War a couple of times, and I wanted to pull a couple of threads here. So as we look at what the Biden administration is doing, and if the Chinese perceive the United States as adopting a more Cold War, Cold War style mentality, to technology competition. Gerard, for you, how do you think China might respond? Would they take more drastic action against the United States? And Emily, as we move forward, how do you see the United States could potentially further expand on competition with China with this sort of Cold War lens that you were mentioning? What other areas of technology competition could we expand this to?
1: So if, if you go back really decades, Chinese official documents and both on the party and government side treat the U.S. as the long-term strategic threat. Um, I think around 2018, they ha- hit a bit of an inflection point in response to what the Trump administration was doing, most noticeably with the trade war, but some other actions like, like the actions against Huawei. I think in a nutshell, they, they sort of always were expecting something like this to happen, it was just happening about a decade sooner than they had forecasted. So, because the change in policy from from the Trump administration uh, compared to the Obama administration was fairly abrupt, um, so they weren't really banking on that. So, I think this the recent action in export controls. Probably does not change China's strategic view at all. They probably were expecting something like this and may not have known the details of when it was going to happen. The primary objective in both the 14 five year plan and in Xi Jinping's new development concept, or at least a major theme, is the idea of self sufficiency, by which they mostly mean technological self sufficiency. This was already a top priority before this even happened. Even if you look at what Xi's speech, at, in his work report speech at the party congress, you know, mostly signaling continuity in policy, but I think two two themes one was that the basically the darkening external environment and second was the increased further increased urgency of technological uh, self-sufficiency efforts so um, you know you could debate whether they can turn the dial up to 11 so to speak in terms of industrial policy they were already doing a lot on this front semiconductors have been a priority sector including for government guidance funds i mean literally the, the largest guidance fund is the national integrated circuit fund that Focuses on semiconductors, and they're already spending a ton on this. Our, our report Red Ink, uh, which we published earlier this year, tried to estimate that at least at the at the higher level. I think what what are they going to do now? Well, one is a question of retaliation. One is what is their domestic response on retaliation? I think it's worth keeping in mind that China's response to U.S. actions, really for the past five years or so, has been fairly restrained. Uh, They usually use the word proportional, but even then it's often not truly proportional. So during the trade war, we would do tariffs, they did counter tariffs. Their counter tariffs actually covered a smaller amount of goods in dollar terms, so then over time they actually were dialing back their retaliation because they think they figured out it was counterproductive. And then in response to other US actions, they haven't done all that much. So for example, we essentially tried to kill Huawei. They did very little in response. They, they might have messed with a few US companies. Uh, they probably blocked the NXP uh, Qualcomm merger because uh, you needed Chinese approval for that. That might have been in retaliation, but it wasn't really a direct thing. But in general, they just sort of took it on the chin. And I think part of that is that you know, China is generally more cautious in responding to the United States or major powers than it is in responding to smaller economies, say like Lithuania or, or Australia, where they really do some aggressive stuff. Um, but it's also that they don't want to shoot themselves in the foot because they, I think they figured out over the past five years that a lot of these actions to retaliate against U.S. firms doesn't have the political impact in terms of decision making that they had hoped. So it's really just not all that useful to go after them. Now, in this case, I think they have to do something. I don't know what that is. It certainly won't be proportional in the sense that they don't really have an equivalent target set or anything like this in terms of how they can retaliate. Um, In terms of China's domestic responses, I I think they're going to just throw more resources at the problem. I think they have probably already hit diminishing returns in terms of dollar investment in in these priority sectors and whether it makes a difference. But I don't know what else they can do. I think there is is an argument, though, that the U.S. action is sort of compelling aggressive import substitution that was not fully happening anyway. Uh, And so maybe that will help expedite the process. But nonetheless, I mean, the priority remains the same. It's all about self-sufficiency.
0: Thank you, Gerard. Let me ask you one quick question before turning it back to Emily. So you mentioned that typically on the economic side, China has been relatively restrained and proportional with respect to its responses to U.S. measures against China. Do you think that restraint and that approach will continue given what we've seen of the results of the 20th Party Congress, that Xi has been able to appoint his loyalists to key positions of power and we're not necessarily seen moderates with respect to the new Chinese leadership.
1: So, whenever we're talking about elite politics, we'll have to throw in a low-confidence caveat to everything we're about to say. You know, on the Party Congress, we could easily do a whole podcast on that. I'll I'll spare you. But suffice to say that, uh, as far as I can tell, almost no one got the lineup correct, which just shows that we don't really know what's going on. The new lineup does seem very firmly, you know, in the Xi camp. I think part of your question depends on how you interpreted events before this Party Congress. Um, I was always skeptical of the line that Li Keqiang and others and... The so-called Communist Youth League faction had much political power or pushback on policy. It does seem that because you know she is surrounding himself with people that he likes and trusts, there is a bit of a, a risk of uh, sort of groupthink. On the one hand, you also then might think that these are people that might be better positioned actually to talk back in a sense because he trusts them. Sort of like she's relationship with Leo Hub before because he know he knew him for so long. Um, I think my, my general read on, on the policy trajectory was that both from the work report and the lineup is mostly one of continuity with increased emphasis on self sufficiency. But I think there, there's, if anything, sort of a risk of turning harder into the turn. So that, you know, maybe they'll accelerate or amplify things they were doing otherwise. Uh, I think that that applies in the foreign policy side where I suspect that to whatever degree there was any reluctance about being aggressive uh, with the US, that has been diminished, except they still have the problem of, one, they don't don't have good retaliatory tools in in sort of a symmetric sense. And two, they really don't want to shoot themselves in the foot. I think that's going to be a constant. So I'm still fairly skeptical they're going to do anything really drastic. But on the other hand, from a sort of political posturing perspective, I think it's probably more likely now than it was before that they're going to hit back with something. I just don't know what that would be.
0: Thank you, Gerard. Emily, I wanted to turn to you to see if you wanted to add to anything that Gerard has mentioned, or if you wanted to go back to the original question I had for you of what you think the Biden administration could do to further expand the technology competition with China.
2: Sure. If I could first pick up on what Gerard was saying about retaliation, I'm not so confident that what we will see is a small level of retaliation, if you will. I mean, if you look at the spectrum of what happened in Lithuania versus Australia in Lithuania, they allowed a Taiwanese embassy equivalent to open and China basically levied an embargo on all Lithuanian exports to China. They've essentially ceased all trade. Uh, In Australia, what the government did was investigate COVID-19 origins, which led China to halt Australian exports of certain goods. I think there was a 70% reduction, for example, in wine exports from Australia to China. Uh, But China omitted from those new restrictions, things that China really needed, like iron ore. I think The retaliation to the new export controls will be somewhere in between, but I do think they will be quite immense. A lot of experts have been saying recently that a a good target for the Chinese would be critical minerals, which we need for the green transition. I can't remember which mineral, but we import 73% of one of the key minerals for electric vehicle battery production from China into the United States. So if you look at this new EV tax credit, you look at some of the provisions in the IRA, we really cannot make progress on a lot of these domestic commitments if China decides to halt exports of those critical minerals to the United States. It's not clear if they'll go that far, but I think we should be prepared to see something fairly significant from the Chinese side. Going back to what the administration might do on future controls, I think we can glean some takeaways from the September executive order providing additional guidance to CFIUS, Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. These covered six key areas. Microelectronics, artificial intelligence, biotech and biomanufacturing, quantum computing, advanced clean energy, and climate adaptation technologies. I think the next tranche that we'll see will probably relate to quantum computing. I think it remains to be seen how broad it will be versus how targeted, but I would expect that in the next few months. I think the other outstanding question is on this outbound investment review mechanism. Uh, I think that we'll probably get an executive order in the next couple of weeks that will subject U.S. firms investing in entities of concern, which basically means high-tech in China, to go through an approval process that either looks like a parallel to CFIUS or that would create a screening tool similar to what BIS is doing for controlled exports now. So what this means overall is that The controls are unlikely to subside. I think they will only broaden in scope. They will intensify. And what we don't know, again, is the degree to which China will choose to retaliate and what that means for the viability of our high-tech sector over time.
0: Emily, that's really a lot to watch for. Six potential areas in which the administration could further expand technology competition against China. Could I ask both of you to weigh in? So what would happen if we really see competition intensify? in these six areas or beyond?
1: Well, I think at a high level, even before these, these actions, I would have said that the trajectory of US-China relations was clearly downward with little prospect for improvement, maybe at best sort of tactical stabilization. The slope of whatever that curve is is now steeper. I think in a strategic sense, Beijing is probably not surprised by this it 's more just sort of the tactical surprise, and I think it's you know the, the basis of much of china 's industrial policy and economic policy is basically preparing for this coming struggle, mostly with the United States. The difficult game that china's trying to play though is they are trying to keep other major economies, particularly in Europe Germany, others neutral and so that that does mitigate their willingness to do things that might have let's say non targeted or global ramifications. Because what they don't want to do is discourage, you know, Siemens, VW, and others from investing in China. Their dominant strategy was and is to try to minimize China's dependence on the world by maximizing the world's dependence on China. And Xi Jinping has more or less said this in some public statements, particularly in the context of trying to hold private firms uh, sort of like within within China foreign firms to sort of use it as leverage. Where is it going from here? I think U.S. policy is not officially decoupling. It's hard to argue, though, that this action is anything but a type of targeted decoupling. And as I said earlier, it's unclear where this ends given the civ fusion justification. I think it is basically a signal in combination with other signals that was already happening that multinational firms need to reconsider their reliances on China particularly in the high tech space in some respects China is doing the US's work for it with its covid lockdowns with um, its response to the russia's invasion of ukraine with its reaction to Nancy Pelosi's visit to taiwan and so i think it's it's sort of like you know the general responses and wolf warrior wolf warrior approaches in china are just sort of adding to concerns and the geopolitical risk business is booming. Um, I think that this action on the U.S. side, it is dramatic, but I think it was probably well considered. They probably were talking about this for over a year and trying to be as careful as possible. I think it's unlikely that, that the U.S. government was able to estimate precisely what the impacts would be because really only firms know, and even then firms don't really know until they actually try it. So basically it's sort of beyond the USG's capabilities, but they were probably as careful as they could be. I think there's some leeway in terms of how they would grant the waivers and enforce this. But I think the broad trajectory, including other things being teed up on the AI side and other things that Emily was talking about, uh, it's, it's just only gonna get worse and when you, when you overlay that with the broader political story, including from the recent party Congress, I just don't see any reason for optimism in bilateral relations. And that's going to have spillover effects economically and technologically, and also both si- on both sides' willingness to take actions against the other.
2: Sure. I think in general, we can go back to this often referenced marathon uh, metaphor, which is that In a race, you can either run faster or trip the other guy. And I think right now what we're seeing is an attempt to both run faster domestically and trip the other guy, which signals a switch in policy from delaying Chinese capabilities that would put them a generation or two back behind the United States to directly degrading their new capabilities. I think the outstanding question from um, a longer term perspective is to what degree This will avoid tripping US domestic industry. Because as we discussed earlier, China is a very important export market for a lot of chip firms. Uh, They depend on these exports to gain revenue, to invest in the next generation of R&D. This is what keeps the United States semiconductor industry ahead. And so the outstanding question is, like Gerard was saying, to what degree this will really affect the private sector? I think it's too early to tell, but this really does seem like a thoroughly considered surgical export control policy that is intended to have fairly minimized impact on on the U.S. domestic uh, sector, but to the degree that the scope of controls broadens over time, it's not clear how much we'll be able to withstand while also staying uh, a generation or two ahead in terms of cutting-edge technology.
0: Emily, on your point of U.S. domestic companies, have we seen a strong response from U.S. companies to these regulations? or is it a mixed response? What's your sense of the overall reaction so far?
2: Well, I think companies worldwide have sort of panicked uh, but that's to be expected when a highly technical, very wonky regulation comes out. There's sort of this knee-jerk reaction to say, okay, we need to temporarily halt business operations or we need to pull workers out of fabs. Uh, I think that's been so far the reaction. I think things will calm down once the private sector has more time to digest really what's in the rules. But like I was saying earlier, a lot of US firms really do depend on China for an export market, and LAM is sort of the go-to headline case that says it's expecting to lose $2.5 billion next year alone um, in sales. And so I, I think... It remains to be seen to what degree this will encourage companies to look elsewhere. If I could just advertise uh, one of my team's papers that we produced in the spring, we actually looked at how to build secure semiconductor supply chains outside of China. So looking at good candidate countries, both in the European Union and quad countries. And the, the options are sort of that companies will either build new supply chains in allied countries, allied in the sense, meaning willing to play ball with US export controls, or they will engage in onshoring, which reduces efficiencies and raises costs over time. So I think long story short, it's early days, but the effects will be profound. We just don't know to what degree and over what time horizon.
0: So on a slightly different note, Gerard, I wanted to follow up on a point that you raised earlier. You mentioned the idea of tactical stabilization in the technology competition. What is that? Because when I think about competition, particularly in the military side, we've heard some voices from the Chinese side saying that maybe we need to have a larger military crisis in order for both sides to take a step back and to reassess the relationship. What is tactical stabilization on the economic front. How do we think about that in terms of moderating technology competition?
1: So I think we, we should maybe separate the idea of competition, which is going to be enduring, and I think would only get worse if there were a crisis, uh, from the question of like actual measures, right? So I think there is a ceiling in terms of U.S. willingness to impose measures like this. And it's basically how much damage are we doing, including to supply chains or our own firms, as Emily was talking about. I don't know what that ceiling is. I suspect, you know, this was carefully calibrated to the extent it could be. I think at, at a certain point, maybe in not too distant future not, you know, not too many moves ahead, the U.S. will roll out all it's willing to do for now. And in terms of trying to trip the other guy, so to speak as Emily was saying, and then maybe focus more on running faster. Because, you know, if you're running and you're trying to trip the other guy, you're also at risk of tripping yourself because you're tripping him, right? So I think that's that's the risk. Would you consider that stabilization? Well, it might be sort of like a tactical stabilization in the sense of not, not adding more fuel to the fire, but it's not actually an improvement, right? And I think the, the long-term planning on the Chinese side is certainly – not assuming that US-China relations get better and the general attitude in DC is the same, right? So I just I just don't see that stabilization as being sort of an enduring or a structural feature.
0: Great, thank you. So we talked a bit about how we don't think these regulations were timed with respect to the Chinese 20-party Congress. Do we think that on the US side this was timed or linked? To the release of the U.S. National Security Strategy? I
2: think probably they were related, but I am not. I don't have enough information from the White House to say definitively, yes, these were targeted at exactly the same time. I think the NSS was supposed to come out um, before the Russian invasion or right around that time frame. And the administration made the decision to delay the release of the NSS after having Greater time to process what was happening and kind of redo some of some of the content, but overall we have seen a strong push by the administration to really follow through on a question that came up in the Firma and Acra conversations in 2018, which was this kind of broad rethinking of export controls in light of civil-military fusion in China. But Congress did not go so far as to actually define national security, and what we've seen in the last last um, decade, if not longer, is the increased infusion of economic considerations into national security. And so this has really been a hard thing to define, if you will. And I think over the last year, we've seen several attempts by the administration to reach a definition of what constitutes national security. So in the context of export controls, traditionally they were purely for national security purposes and were not strategic controls. They were not attempting to bring about some greater geopolitical change in the long run. Um, They were governed largely by the structure of lists of specific items that are designed for WMDs or conventional weapons applications. That was national security, was how do we prevent adversaries from gaining access to these cutting-edge technologies. I think now the picture is quite different. Jake Sullivan at Georgetown said the post-Cold War era is over, and we really are shifting from delay to degrade. Uh, And so what that means for national security, I think, is that we'll see an increasing presence of economic statecraft considerations in our approach to security over the long run. So I think there's been a... Clear evolution under the Biden administration and how we actually go about defining these things. But to the extent that the two were released at the same time, I think is probably a coincidence, but part of a broader framework.
0: So, in the interest of time, we'll need to wrap up relatively shortly. But I do have a set of final questions for both of you. Emily, you had talked about how our allies and partners have responded. But could you elaborate on that a little bit more? In particular, I'm very interested in seeing how our European allies and partners have responded. How do you see what our European colleagues are doing? And what do you see as the next steps for crafting a less unilateral approach to either these sets of regulations for China or overall competition, technology competition with China?
2: Yeah, thanks for that question, Bonnie. I think it's really an excellent one. And I have been trying to got an answer to this exact question since October 8th I suppose I've been shopping it around with heads of financial institutions in Europe with a broad stroke of private sector representatives and experts and what's curious is that the European response so far has been fairly muted we finally had the CEO of asML go on the record last week and say well at the end of the day um, asML won't be implicated to the degree that we initially anticipated we have a backlog of orders and other countries countries. countries like Korea and Japan that will sustain ASML uh, export revenue. And so I think the muted response is really telling because the Europeans um, are kind of keeping their heads down. I think they're curious to see what's around the corner. But at the same time, it really does show the difference in approach uh, among not only Brussels, but also individual member states and how they regard China. If you look at Germany, Germany's economy is very imperiled right now by an increase in energy prices. I heard from someone at the the DG level in Brussels uh, a couple of weeks ago that aluminum production in Europe is down 50% in the last six months. That is a very scary figure when thinking about the long-term viability of the European economy. And so these new controls that risk a reduction in revenue for European firms comes at a very bad time when it's unclear if the European industry can withstand additional hits. Um, I think this also highlights the, the long-term mismatch, if you will, in the regard of China either as a threat or a customer. And it seems like Berlin and Brussels and the Netherlands, for, for that matter, are still in the camp of wanting to conduct trade with China. They view China as sustaining their economies to a degree, whereas the Biden administration is really taking a different approach. So far, the administration has not succeeded in convincing European capitals to get on board. Um, I think there is some disagreement as to whether or not we're seeing a more profound shift take place in Europe. It depends which country we're talking about, who you're talking to, which industries you're talking to in Europe. Um, But there are some in Washington who are optimistically hoping to see a sort of sea change in the European approach to China. And it's not clear so far that that's really happened. And so I think as these controls intensify, as we continue to infuse the definition of national security with Economic considerations, where that leaves Europe is an outstanding question. I'll just finish um, this answer with one more. Um, short statement from Sabina Sabina van, who is the Director General for Trade in the European Union, and she's repeatedly said that the European Union should not become collateral damage when it comes to the U.S. approach to China. And so I think that's really something that's important to take into account in the long run, particularly as the United States starts laying the foundations for a new multilateral export control regime that would probably replace the Vassanar arrangement. We really will need Uh, allied buy-in to make these a success. And it's not clear diplomatically how that will be achieved.
0: Thank you, Emily. And last question for you, Gerard. As we look at the Biden administration's new regulations uh, against China on the technology side, how much do they actually matter? Are these measures going to stunt China's economic growth? And more broadly, how much would it impact China economically?
1: I would think about these controls and maybe other subsequent controls that might be coming. The impact on China, I think matters more for Beijing's sense of national security than it would for its actual economic development. Now, that's that's my sort of objective view. I think in general the Chinese government has a a, a techno fetish. I think they overweight the importance of technology, uh, specifically they overweight the importance of owning and controlling technology. In terms, in terms of development, what actually matters is the adoption and diffusion of technology, which often does not require you to be the one making it. In fact, most the most technological gains, innovation gains, are not captured by the company that makes the product, right? So you can still have all the benefits of semiconductors if they're made in Taiwan rather than China. Um, and in fact, if you try to scale it, it's so like TSMC, which is the gold standard of, of, of semiconductor firms, their total workforce worldwide is, is, is 65,000 people. SMIC, the major Chinese uh, semiconductor firm, has about 18,000 staff. Okay, China has a workforce of over 700 million people. There is no world in which a, anything above a negligible share of the workforce, even a, even a major share of the educated workforce is working in this particular field. I think it's more of all the downstream and applications of, of related technologies which doesn't necessarily require ownership of it, although there are some spillovers, some sort of learning by doing. I think that that really this is part of the theme of what Xi's recent work report was saying, is that national security is paramount for Beijing. They don't want to be cut off from foreign powers or really the U.S. and they worry about choke points. And so in that regard, indigenization does matter quite a bit. But in terms of economic development, it's, it's maybe of secondary importance. I basically think that you know whether the Chinese economy reaches high income status doesn't really matter. It doesn't depend all that much on whether they're successful in chips or other high tech uh, sectors. I think if whether they become very rich might depend on that, but sort of whether they go above middle income doesn't. What matters more is sort of the innovation environment, the market environment that would have enabled those types of technologies to prosper. So it's sort of like a coincident indicator. It's not that the ownership of chips per se results in prosperity, but if you have the environment that can produce that, maybe it has other broader spillovers. But in the case of China, I mean, particularly in response to these actions, they're just going to go even harder on industrial policy. Um, and the state is already, over the past two years or so, she's, you know tech crackdown, so to speak demonstrate a clear prioritization of manufacturing over services, even though services are what large economies actually do. It's what most of China's economy is, in fact. So in a sense, they're sort of neglecting broader economic development for a focus on technological vulnerabilities.
0: Great. Thank you very much, Emily and Gerard. This is a really fascinating discussion looking at both the U.S. approach to China and how China may respond or may not retaliate. Thank you again for joining me today.
2: Thank you so much for hosting. Let's pencil in a follow-up in a year and then Gerard can tell me I was wrong about Chinese retaliation.
1: Yes, hopefully I, I am right about that, but we'll see. Thank you.